Hello, everyone. Before we dive into this very first episode of The Orange Table, which, by the way, you guys, I could not be more excited for you all to see, I wanted to write a little bit of an editor's note explaining what this series is at large. I have two amazing companions in this venture. They're my co-hosts, Aisha and Victoria. And we were seeing this social media conversation right now, people sharing their experiences of discrimination and racism on Princeton's campus. And we thought it is about time that we open up a format to speak openly about these topics and hopefully move somewhere. We want to educate our peers. And we want to provide a space where the Black community can feel heard and seen. We're going to go after everything. This is a super unfiltered conversation. We're going to go after faculty diversity. We're going to go after colorism. We're going to go after um, social segregation, eating club culture even perhaps. And we want to emphasize that this is not our show. This is the community show. So if you see anything that you're even vaguely interested in, please contact any of us and we can get you on and we can start talking about these topics. For the very first episode, we wanted to emphasize a call to action for the entire community. Right now, there are activists on our campus who are organizing, they have specific demands, and we want you to hear from them directly. So today we've invited on Jaywani, Ali, and Kaylin. Thank you all for getting this far. Please watch this episode. Please share this episode. This is The Orange Table. All right, so I'm Ali. I'm a rising senior in the policy school. Um, I'm focusing in race policy and I'm getting a certificate in African American studies. Um, in terms of student activism, I've been involved in the Change WWS Now campaign, which is soon to switch over to Change Princeton Now, as a lot of different uh, departments are now organizing. And so uh, we're focusing on, you know, giving them an audience and uh, elevating those voices in those conversations. Um, so the tone is shifting a bit, but that's, I guess, how we got our start. Um, outside of campus, I'm in High Steppers, uh, which is the step team on campus. Um, but yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Kaylin, a rising senior in the Department of Molecular Biology, and I'm also doing a certificate in Global Health and Policy. Um, I've been involved with BSU since my freshman year, and now I, I'm currently helping to help facilitate the task forces that kind of arose a few weeks ago as a result of protests and different initiatives that have started. Uh, so that's kind of my capacity there. And I'm also an RCA in women. Hey everyone, I'm Jelani Chow. Um, I'm a sophomore in a rising junior now in the mechanical aerospace department. Um, as far as student organizations, I've been involved with PDMA, Princeton Black Men's Association, um, with PASA, the African Student Association. Um, and then I'm also working with a hip hop empowerment group where we're trying to create conversations on hip hop and how that relates into society. Um, as far as kind of activism on campus, um, along with Kaylin and then some folks who aren't on this call, um, Emily Cheston and Abby Drummond, I've helped kind of organize the Black community around several items we feel are really uh, areas for impact um, and helping organize there. Um, also part of the Men's Soccer Club and African uh, Music Ensemble, um, as well as a couple of things on campus. That's awesome. Thank you guys for introducing yourselves. So we want to start with social media activism. And I think there's a really interesting conversation here because there's a lot to criticize potentially with some of the performative aspects of that activism. But there are also a lot of really important stories that are being told through that medium. And we wanted to highlight just at the beginning uh, this one account that has kind of caught our interest. I don't know if you guys have seen, but it's called Black Ivy Stories. And it kind of chronicles some <laughs> instances of racism, um, often blatant and even sometimes violent, um, from Ivy League universities. So we wanted to share a few, get reactions, just kind of 
get your reaction to this account in general and the sharing of those kind of stories and what impact that has, um, especially framing it <laughs> with the fact that a lot of, at least in my life, a lot of the, my white friends at Princeton have been quite shocked by this. I think there's been kind of a very divergent reaction from people of color on these campuses to these kind of posts versus a lot of our white colleagues. So we're gonna share a few of them. I think we have them and then get some reactions. Okay, I'll go first. Um, this one um, is from someone from Princeton um, 13. Um, it says, during my first week of freshman year, I was pulled out of class by three public safety officers in front of my peers. The officer said I fit the description of a male that reportedly had a deadly weapon on campus that morning. Fortunately for me, I was at practice that morning with multiple witnesses. I later found out that the deadly weapon was a score gun. Yeah, I guess this is sort of reacting to that, but also uh, reacting to um, something that was said before, that these are surprising to some people. Um, I guess like for me, like it's not surprising that that happened. Um, and like, I, I feel like a lot of people are sort of ignorant to what goes on on campus and not even just ignorant to it, but refusing to actually acknowledge that these things do happen. Um, I think that you see it, you know, in, in these stories, but also like in classrooms, as you learn about race, I'm honestly shocked sometimes by what people don't know about black history. Um, when I'm sitting in a class and they're like, oh, I had no idea about Tuskegee syphilis. I'm like, what? Right. Like, <laughs> is that really something that you just didn't know? Um, and so it, it's honestly not surprising that people are surprised by these things, but it's sad um, that these are things that people ignore. Also, when I read that the first time, I wasn't at all surprised. Definitely disappointed, but not surprised at all. But what comes to mind for me is kind of not the people who are saying, and not the like non-Black people that are saying, oh, this is shocking, how could this have happened? It's the people who are offline being like, oh, it's an honest mistake, probably wasn't about race, they probably looked alike, oh, and maybe it looked like a gun, and all the excuses they'll make and go around and around and around and around in circles to excuse the fact that it was racism because they aren't ready to have that conversation. And I hear that offline, obviously no one's gonna say that on social media now with cancel culture and everything, but there are so many people that still think it isn't that big a deal or why do you always have to make it about race? And those things are really interesting and I wish there was a way to talk about that side of things as well. Yeah, let's go into the second one, Victoria, if you can. No problem. So this one was, for me, I was the only one that was actually shocked by it because that was absolutely disgusting, but I'll read it. I was sitting in the dining area of, campus, of the campus center. At the table next to me, I overheard one of my classmates and her friends ranking students based on race. She explicitly stated that Asian students were the most intelligent and hardworking and that black students were not whoa okay she said also that black students at princeton didn't deserve or fairly earn their acceptances citing her asian friends from high school who she believed were more worthy yet they were denied admissions hours later it was announced that the classmate who was speaking won the election to be the new undergraduate student body president that's princeton for you wow What comes to mind first with that one? This one was, it was shocking to me that was the USG president because when you go onto USG's Instagram page, all they're talking about is being diversity and claiming that they're inclusive and they're trying to do everything for the people, but I don't think they really have our best interests at heart. And if they're electing these type of people, it makes you question what type of hiring process or election process 
puts into place. Because I'm pretty sure we vote for these people, but of course they're displaying themselves as politically correct, inclusive, respectful human beings, but clearly they're not. But that's my take. And also, I feel like at the heart of that comment is like the underestimation of the black intellect. And I feel like that's something that is, that's probably my most common experience of racism at Princeton is like people being shocked at me being capable <laughs> in any setting. Or <laughs> like, I know this is one that we probably all received before, but like the notion of being articulate or like well-spoken and people being extremely shocked at that. I don't know if that has been experienced for anyone else. 100%. Um, this story actually brings to mind something that happened to me um, when I was having a conversation the summer after my freshman year um, with this like wealthy Jewish kid who had grown up in like uh, like Upper East Side, New York or something, some very wealthy area about education. And essentially he said that black people were lazy, were the we're our own problem, I guess. Like, why couldn't we do what the Jewish kids did? And I was like, I'm mean, not even going to unpack that yet. But then he followed it up with saying, if you give a black person, a white person, and an Asian person like $20, like the black person isn't spending it on education. He was like, all else equal. Like, you have to look at the facts. This is what would happen. And I was like, I was, I, I was like, I, I actually didn't have any words to say. Like, I didn't, I didn't understand how someone could say something like that to a black person, but also how like that argument made zero sense and it just as if he had never taken a class on like how society has worked at all ever but he really fully believed it and he was like this is an opinion it's fact and the just the entitlement that some students have in their opinions on like the inferiority of black people or people of color in general is astounding to me yeah and how do you respond to those type of statements like, we don't have to educate them either. I'm not, sometimes people say stuff and it's like, do I have to tell you why this is wrong? I really don't feel like it, actually. You can continue believing whatever you want. That's a great point, actually. Awesome. Like, what, sorry, I don't want to cut you off, Ali, but just, like, I think something interesting to discuss is, like, what responsibility we have towards education. Like, whether we need to take on that role. I mean, we are taking on that role somewhat with what we're doing even right now. And, but what, at the end of the day, is the responsibility of people who are in the majority, people who have the power. I wonder. Go ahead, Ali, I don't wanna. Yeah, I guess in response to that, like whenever I, I hear comments or their comments directed at me, I always am like hesitant to say anything for like this fear of being the angry black woman, or again, I think Kaylin said it, like always bringing race into it. And like when it's just like, it's innately a racist comment. Um, and I, I was talking to my dad about this. I was like the, the most, uh, insulting thing you could say to a white person is to call them a racist like like that above anything will get them the most riled up and I'm like why why is that because they'll admit that something they said was off or discriminatory or but they won't they won't ever say like oh that was racist I might I might have made a racist comment um, and so I think that when it comes to how we respond to these comments it's also you have to consider how your comments going to be perceived um, and so I just normally don't even say anything because I don't want to, I don't want anyone to like misinterpret what I'm saying or, or to act to say that I'm acting aggressive or, um, I'm missing, I'm misinterpreting what they're saying and almost using it as a gaslighting moment, um, where like, it's not a really valid comment. Um, so yeah, that's, I don't generally respond, generally respond at all. Um, I think rather it becomes 
I think what's interesting is that in those moments, I find that more often myself and, and I've heard from my peers will rather kind of force themselves to endure something they shouldn't have to endure rather than the person who may have said something offensive, feeling challenged to sort out their thought processes and sort out the insulting comment that they had said to someone else. Um, I, I don't know what the, the clear fix is here, but I, I just think it's, I've always found it really backwards that in moments like these, it feels like the person who, you know, the offensive comment was targeted towards or someone who's emotionally impacted by that often feels like they have to endure um, more than the other person feels compelled to reflect on their experience and then, you know, change what they had done. You know, honestly, Jelani, I definitely agree with that. Like that really resonated with me because I feel like a lot of times in situations where it's like, someone says something like like a microaggression or just something blatantly racist to you you just feel like kind of like what Ali said you feel like you don't want to be the angry black person you don't want to make it awkward or uncomfortable for anybody but it's also like by not saying anything sometimes I feel this sort of guilt because it's kind of like how can I like be an activist and but also let them just walk away like thinking that and saying those kinds of things and just believing that and not like fighting I guess back in a sense but it's also like like, do I really, like, should I really allow myself to waste the energy um, and kind of the emotional kind of, like, and experience some sort of emotional trauma from, like, having to kind of, like, basically argue for my existence in a sense. And it's just, like, such a, I guess it's, it's such a complex issue and I just don't really know how to kind of deal with it, but it's just something I think we should definitely talk about. Like, I think the fix that I see as probably the best is like putting that responsibility on the non-Black people to stand up in that moment and expend their energy and use their privilege of not having that fear of being seen in an aggressive light. And it's their responsibility to try to push the conversation forward. <laughs> yeah, just real quick, um, that just reminded me, I had almost forgotten that when that incident happened to non-Black people, two non-Black POC were there, but chose to say nothing. And I guess because it didn't relate to their specific groups, they didn't feel inclined to say anything, but it was exhausting for me to also have to be there defending like my own existence and intelligence while also having like people who I thought were allies just say nothing. So there's definitely an emergence of the performative allies, but then there's also all of those people who have said nothing at all. I just want to emphasize, like, in my opinion, being an ally is not that difficult. I don't know. I just, there's this amazing quote from an activist recently, which is like, white people treat racism like it's rocket science. And I really do feel like that comes through with this whole notion of like needing to go out and start a book club and read seven different books on anti-racism to even feel like you can be that ally. Like, yes, you need to educate yourself and root your allyship in historical understanding but at the same point like standing up for somebody when you see blatant racism is not doesn't seem like the most complicated thing in the world to me <laughs> i think or you brought up a great point of like and caitlin like three years ago people weren't doing the same type of allyship or performative type of activism but all of a sudden everyone's pro-black anti-black and it's it's for me it's confusing confusing to me like why now are we doing this is because it's they, they know who angela davis is now all of a sudden <laughs> bsu instagram but we got 300 followers 
like two months from this whole movement. So it's like, wow, it's a trend now? Hmm. To each their own, I guess, but that's something. Yeah. And actually, that's a perfect segue into something we wanted to get your reactions to. Um, talking of, I mean, this might be somewhat of an editorializing uh, segue, but talking about performative and more cosmetic activism, uh, the name change. I want to get your guys' reaction to uh, Woodrow Wilson's name being removed from the policy school as well as what is now First College. And whether you think, I, don't, I, I feel again, this is kind of a theme in this conversation is like kind of the dichotomy in terms of how black students versus non-black students are viewing this because I've, I've very much seen it framed in some circles as the largest contribution to anti-racism since the civil rights movement. I mean, I mean, that's a little bit of humor for you, but I just want to know what, what you guys think about that decision, how much you think that actually does to push things forward. Yeah, thank you, you know, pretty much hit the nail on the head there and that it's very much, you know, while I think that it was necessary, while I'm grateful that it happened um, and, you know, in, in being grateful, I want to recognize all of the student activists who put in so much of, of their time and energy and sacrificed um, their undergraduate careers um, with the Black Justice League several years ago. Um, you know, I'm very grateful for all that effort and I'm very happy that it had changed, but I think you're right in saying it, it is more of a symbolic change than it is anything. Um, and especially it, in the moment we are now, I feel like it's so necessary to have structural change and to have institutional changes um, as much, if not more than we do have these symbolic changes. Um, because you see that, you know, even in changing a name, it doesn't mean that students aren't, aren't gonna feel motivated to, you know, push back on that issue right away. And we saw the kind of backlash that we saw from undergraduates and alumni um, to the name change already. So I think for me, it was an immediate testament that, well, this is a good thing. This doesn't root out all the problems that exist um, by any means. So, you know, I think it is necessary, but I'm very much looking forward to more structured changes, um, increase in representation and in, in faculty level, increase in, you know, representation at the undergraduate level. I think we're like half of the national average black population on campus. Um, and, you know, I, I think that those are things that would lead to a better experience for Princeton's undergraduates um, as much as changing a name would. Yeah, um, I think that there are like, as is famous in Princeton tradition, working groups on this and board meetings and whatever else they do um, to talk about it. I won't be convinced until I see actual plans. Um, and I think a big part of the success was how much media attention it was gaining and just like a general trend in the in the country for taking down these monuments. But what's really funny to me is just to watch like all these white people defend these racist people they didn't know like their family members and to go and like protect statues and do crazy things like that. Like it just makes no sense to me and people literally would pay no attention to Woodrow Wilson before but then all of a sudden have an entire dissertation about his beneficial contributions to the university and society and their own personal lives and i'm like where's that same energy like for 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 people that actually contribute positively to society for black like historians and and it just it's just really interesting to watch those reactions and there's actually a video i don't know how many of you have seen it that they made during the BJ, bjl protests um of reactions of other students 
And there's just like so many kids who would just like sit there and defend Woody Woo and just say like, oh, it's not a big deal. I don't get why everyone's so upset. And it's the same stuff that's kind of being said now by those emails that went out on listservs and from alumni. I didn't even read most of them because it was just going to be nonsense, but everyone's acting like it's some big affront to their like identity when in reality it has nothing to do with their own personal life. So it just, it's very interesting to see the reactions. And I think what's, what's continues to baffle me is that, you know, people act like we're short on people to look up to and, and famous Princeton alums, you know, I feel like in Princeton's long history, there are plenty of other folks that we could um, more easily idolize um, than some of these incredibly um, contentious figures, if you will. Um, and so what's shocking to me is how quickly people are to defend folks who have a, a legacy that is shameful rather than look to other folks who, you know, are, are more easily icons, folks who actually embody um, some of the values that Princeton claims to stand for. Um, it, it's shocking to me. I definitely agree. Um, and I kind of had a question for you guys going off of what you guys just said. How do you feel um, or what do you really think the atmosphere of campus will be like? I know um, Jaylani, you're a um, rising junior, so I'm assuming you'll be going on campus. And what do you guys think kind of the atmosphere in terms of like the student body will be like? Do you think there will be a lot of activism happening or do you think it'll be kind of like dead at that point? Because I know momentum feels as if it's dying down because you're just seeing beach pictures at this point and no longer black posts. So I'm just wondering what do you guys think it'll look like? Yeah, I guess following up to that point, this might be optimistic, but I expect a lot more from people now that I've seen them post and, you know, I saw them put up a black square. Um, I just expect a lot more from people when these incidents take place. Um, you know, there's an incident going on right now and I feel like a lot of people have been silent about it um, outside of the black community. And, um, and so I feel like with all this education going on and all of these book clubs and, and whatnot, um, I, when I get back on campus, hopefully I get back on campus, um, that things will be changed. There, there will be a culture change um, and people will be more um, in tune with, with what's happening across campus and more willing to listen. Yeah, and I don't want to put you on the spot, Victoria, but I feel like in our conversations earlier on like the topic of activism expanding in the coming years, like I think you were a bit more skeptical than than we've talked <laughs> thus far. <laughs> Actually, I think it's an important perspective to share because I feel like there is a historical record to support that skepticism, in all honesty. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but it, it is questionable to see people who have been making certain comments, who have been saying anti-Black stuff, all of a sudden making this quick change. I, I do question it. I don't think it's completely organic or natural. I do think for at least a little bit that these people are just presenting themselves a certain way so they're not criticized but I don't think it's I don't think it's 100% genuine but I'm going to trust that partially it is partially at least but I do kind of want to shift the conversation at this last section here to talk about specific demands <clears throat> and specific action that you guys would like to see from the administration because at the end of the day as we've discussed it is it's policy 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 in terms of actually getting things done um one place I want to start, actually, just because the conversation has already kind of flown there. Um, this one's specifically for Ali, but I know on the issue of double sites, 
you guys are now considering critical intervention. I just wondering if you could explain kind of what that looks like and why you guys made the decision not to call for its removal, but instead for intervention. Yeah, so um, the four original signers or the four drafters of this letter um, were non-Black allies in the policy school. Um, and when we met with Walter Hood um, in that discussion, we realized how many ways the university twisted his message um, to sort of, I mean, as we know, the trustee board didn't even look at it. Um, so, or members at least of the trustee board didn't look at it. Um, and in that conversation, we sort of came to the conclusion that, um, that given that it is a monument that does address black history as well, it shouldn't be up to allies to decide what's to be done with that when it is directly affecting the black community specifically. Um, and so the move from removal to critical intervention was meant to allow for the removal if that's what the black community wants, if that's what the black community decides, but it also gives them the opportunity to do what else, what, what other items with it. Um, and that can be a multitude of things that, you know, whether that's uh, trying to put a, a, a second piece up that's in conversation that better addresses the legacy. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because in talking with Walter Hood, he really described his mission, his, his why he did it as because these places, these plazas used to be the main places where political discussion would happen, where civic debate would happen. And so in putting up that piece, he wanted that debate to continue. And that's, he actually directly addressed the protesters at the unveiling of the monument by saying, let this continue. Let's continue to debate this. Um, and the university has sort of used that piece to shut down the conversation on Wilson. And, you know, by, by putting it up, they're like, you know what, we've dealt with his legacy. Um, we've addressed that he wasn't, you know, the best guy, but we're moving on. And that's definitely not what Walter Hood wanted. And so, um, well, I guess we need to have more discussion on, on what that monument really represents, what it's meant to mean, what it means now that they've taken down his name, um, and what, how best to, to address um, its presence on campus and where it sits. You know, it sits, you know, at the Freedom Fountain or whatever, um, when in fact Wilson was all for um, the oppression of Black people. Any other thoughts on double sites? I mean, this is a good time because I feel like Ali's kind of posing the question of what people think around critical intervention versus maybe removal. Does anyone have any strong opinions or? Yeah, I think the, the comment that I was going to make is uh, I feel like, well, perhaps there is an argument to see all sides of an argument. Uh, I think it's also incredibly important to provide the context um, and give people access to all of those different angles. I think it's really difficult when you walk around campus and see certain iconography that's just a standalone figure of a previous slave owner. It's hard to understand just by seeing that, oh, this is Princeton reckoning with their past. It's hard to really make that connection. And I go to the school. I mean, I'm imagining people walking through campus or people from other universities looking at what's happening on Princeton's campus to perhaps grasp the multi-layered perspective um, that the university is, is claiming to be so valuable. Um, so I think that is really important. I think there's also a line at which, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of these contentious people are contentious for a reason and there's shameful history for a reason. And I don't think there is a lack of other people who perhaps embody Princeton values more um, that we can look up to and 
exhibits with which we can tap into these same conversations without you know making students feel uncomfortable on campus um, so that that's what i would say i think that there are easier and better ways to facilitate these kinds of conversations without actually damaging the experience on princeton's campus for so many undergrads and i would say um when we talked about this earlier i just wanted to be careful that we didn't spend more money on putting up more statues when money could be better directed other places in terms of reconciling with Princeton's actual history, um, with like displacing black people in the area or the slaves that built Princeton and other things that we could use a couple million dollars to do rather than put up another statue, which isn't to say there isn't value in adding more information. But I also just want to be, I want Princeton to be more critical about how they're spending money in this community. I think that's a great point. And I think that also transitions well to kind of a conversation around reparations and potentially whether that's a necessary step. I'm curious to know what you guys think about that. I think for those curious about um, what reparations might look like in Princeton, there's a really good book called I Hear My People Singing. It's by, one second, um, Catherine Watterson. And it goes through the history of, it goes through African-American history in Princeton and everything that they endured as Princeton University came in, the Witherspoon Jackson community and, all of the issues that they faced. Um, for those of you who don't know, one surprising fact is that Fitzrandolph's gate was actually closed, remained closed until 1971, I believe, when it was finally opened, when Palmer Square and, and Nassau Street was pretty much entirely gentrified. Um, and so in, in addressing the ways that Princeton um, might have impacted black communities, Princeton University that is, um, I think doing our research is obviously a huge step, and um, I Hear My People Singing is a really good book for that. Yeah, there are no other thoughts on reparations. I'm just wondering, we kind of want to leave it as general as possible. Like, what is on your mind right now? Um, you're all students involved in activism in some fashion. What is top of your list in terms of getting done? Because I feel like one thing we want to accomplish with this venue is that with those, act, with those people on social media who are saying that they want to join the conversation and saying that they want to be allies, I think it's good for them to be armed with specific action points and specific understanding of what it is that Black students want. Yeah, I can start us off there. I yeah. think um, what's big for me, I, my, I'm almost conflicted and I wanna, I've been having meetings with um, Jaylani was just on one about like, faculty diversification. And I think that's really important for representation. Like in my department, there's no black faculty, no black TAs or grad students or postdocs or lab techs. There's like no black faces at all. And it's a real problem and definitely impacted my journey towards my department. And I know it will impact other people, but I also am torn with recognizing that this movement is bigger than just Princeton and that we live in a society where like we are given privileges in having like this Ivy League background and having like Princeton as like our platform and just kind of how to leverage that and use that to help others who haven't had a way to get here as well. So in my mind, I wanna help make Princeton a better place for incoming black students, but also still reconcile that a lot of black students can't access it. There's a lot of black people that are struggling in America in a way that we need to also pay attention to and direct resources and efforts towards as well. Yeah, I think those are fantastic initiatives that I'm fully supporting. Um, I feel like for me, I break it down into two categories. I think the first is about black people. 
Um, I think the second one is about black resources. Um, and I think about that in, you know, the first one being, how do we actually get a representative picture of the United States? Um, because we are far from where we need to be as far as a black population to, to be matching that. Um, and the second one, you know, once we actually get black bodies on campus, what does it look like to make it a space welcomed um, in which they feel like they can have ownership of Princeton as much as the next person can? Um, so as far as the first one, you know, we've spoken a lot about faculty diversification, which is a complex issue, but a necessary issue. Um, I feel like also the undergraduate representation, you know, as I've been mentioning, um, I want to see double the black undergraduates. I feel like if Princeton is upholding the mission of representing the United States um, and representing the full breadth of the nation, why don't we have accurate representation at an undergraduate level for black students? Um, so that I think is incredibly important. Um, and also, you know, black people at the faculty level, at the, at the staff level, I think it's just incredibly important to create um, a, a picture that's fully representative. I think to my next point about making black students and black people on campus feel like they can have ownership, um, I think there are a series of resources that do need to be available. Um, because while, you know, initiatives have been taken, what we're still seeing is that black students are feeling uh, a stress and aren't feeling welcomed in spaces. And, you know, you look on Instagram pages, you, you talk to black students, people are having these experiences that are weighing on them, that are traumatic, that are detracting their ability to be students, which is an unfair weight that they're having to carry. Um, and so I'd encourage things like mental health resources, um, mentorship programs, for example, um, spaces where black students can connect and reflect on their experience. Um, and I'm so, so grateful that we have the CAF. Um, and I feel like spaces like this are incredibly necessary throughout the campus. Um, you know, so I, I think those are just a, a few things that are incredibly important. Um, but again, I think it's about getting black people, getting an actual representative picture, um, and then providing resources and so that those bodies can feel welcome on campus and feel like they have the same ownership of Princeton. Yeah, I guess I fully like, support everything that everyone else was saying. Um, I, I guess one thing I could add on um, in terms of, of non-Black allies wanting to, you know, be supportive of, of everything that's going on, understanding that the work doesn't end is never over. Um, and that your own personal development and your own journey towards being anti-racist is, is not, it doesn't have a clear stopping point. And so when you read a book this summer, don't say you can't read a book can't read, I'm not racist, am I? You can't read, write fragility, and then say, yeah, I, I got it all down. Um, when you get back on campus, you know, there's so many professors, so many amazing black professors um, that deserve to have more students in their classes, that deserve to have wider perspectives, that deserve, deserve to be able to reach more people. And I'm, I'm, I know that they've created some sort of diversity requirement or something, um, but really, the people that are taking these courses right now are the people that want to have these conversations to begin with. So if you're uncomfortable with these conversations, I'd say this is the perfect time to go to a class and to hear other perspectives. Um, I think you also have to consider who all's teaching your course and whether or not you should boycott that class. You know, there is a professor that made a, quite a few statements and, you know, consider why you're taking his class, why you're valuing that, um, that class and that opinion when it's so clearly wrong um, and rooted in racism. Um, so when you're taking a class by a racist professor, you can of course walk out of it with a racist perspective. Um, and so uh, really do more work when you're considering uh, what classes to take. It's also understanding your major. Um, if you're a policy major, understand that race is involved, has historically been involved in every area of policy. 
if you're a health policy major, if you're on the pre-med track, why are you graduating without any knowledge of, consider why you might be graduating without any knowledge of, uh, of history, of the history of black uh, people and, and the medical field. Um, and when you're, if you're a computer science major, consider algorithms. Like there's so many ways you can, uh, you can relate race to your own uh, future profession. And, and it's so important that we understand all of these things um, and that it's not only you know, black people that are doing the work to, to fix this country. I think there was this quote going around Instagram that um, you know, racism won't end until white people realize that this is a white problem that white people need to fix and not a black problem that white people need to empathize with. And so while you're at this university, you have the opportunity um, to be involved in these conversations uh, beyond just, you know, programming and speakers coming to campus, but really, you know, working for a grade for it um, and forcing yourself to be writing these papers and doing these large research projects on it. Um, so I guess for non-Black people, I'd say take more classes because they're available. Sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, it was an amazing answer. I just wanted to thank you all for the conversation today. This has been amazing. We had a conversation about race where we actually used the B word meaning black. <laughs> and I think that um, I think that a lot of people are going to learn from this. So just as a last element, I was wondering if anyone had any other resources they want to share, because we do want this to, at the end of the day, not only be a conversation, we want to invite people and even push people to um, actually take action. So if there are any resources or anything you want to highlight before we finish off today, go for it. And that's also, Ayesha, Victoria, anyone pop in if you feel like there's something left to be said. I guess for black people, um, a book I just finished reading is I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown and I really loved it. And it's really good job of addressing um, being black in a white community. So highly recommend. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think the conversation isn't over, but there, there's a ton of resources. If you wanna learn something, it may be as simple as just Googling it, but you know, teach their own. Um, and there's one quote I think that resonates with all of us today. It's, it's from Ibrahim X. Kendi. He said, the only thing that's wrong with black people is that people think something is wrong with black people. And that's just it's perfectly mm. said. Mm. <laughs> Thank you guys. That's a wrap for episode one. Thanks, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you.